0: You know, Rhonda does an amazing job with children's messages, don't you think? And also, it's always interesting how a lot of the folks who do these messages for the kids it seems like they've read my notes ahead of time. Um, and so we're going to be talking about some of those same things, but we're in a series on the Gospel of Mark. So there are four gospels. Well, there's really one gospel, but there's four versions, four, as we say, the gospel according to. Gospel According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four books of the Bible. We're doing a series in The Gospel According to Mark, as Mark tells the story of the good news of Jesus, the life of Jesus. And so we're going to be doing this series through Easter and to learn from Jesus, to learn what Jesus is. And so the last two weeks, we've kind of introduced ourselves going in, especially in the first chapter of Mark, and these themes of good news. And the good news, this word good news, or we say gospel, is something to be proclaimed. It's to be announced as something that's happened. As one scholar puts it, he's, something has happened as a result of which the world is a different place. And so that's one way to think of it. So the gospel, the good news is something to be proclaimed. The other word that we're going to be talking a lot about in the coming weeks is the word kingdom. And so Jesus comes on the scene and the very first thing he says is to say, is, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. And all through the Gospel of Mark and through all four Gospels, he talks about this idea of the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God, which goes back to page one, the very beginning of the Bible where God created the world, God reigns as king over the world with people to live as his kings under him and ruling underneath him. And the rest of the story of the Bible is our failure to do that. The way we've usurped that power, the way we've tried to take that power and God's constantly working until the time where God will rule and reign again. And that's the story of Jesus, is that God rules and reigns through Jesus, the resurrected king, through his redeemed and restored people who serve as servant kings. And so that's kind of the big picture of the thing. But we recognize if Jesus comes on the scene talking about the kingdom of God, people must have had some idea of what was going on, that this is the continuation of a story. That the New Testament, that Jesus doesn't just drop out of the sky, but is instead the continuation of a story. If someone walks in and says, the kingdom has come, you must have some idea, what is he talking about? And so it's a continuation of a story, which makes sense only if you know the rest of the story so far. And so the Weeks until Easter, we'll be exploring what the kingdom looks like, and in particular, its relationship to the cross, because there's these two themes, these two ideas: the kingdom and the cross. And sometimes there's a, a temptation to separate them, to to pull them apart, but they're intricately connected because the key cross is the place where Jesus becomes king, and the image, the vision, the ideals, the um, message of the cross is central to the kingdom. And so we're going to be thinking about how does Jesus finish the unfinished story of the Old Testament? What does that have to do with us? And how do we do kingdom and what does kingdom mean in our context? So we're going to be looking today at this story we heard from the gospel of Mark chapter 3. And so the story of Mark, and a couple weeks ago when I introduced Mark, Mark, I said Mark moves really fast. It's just as fast moving. If you blink for a second, you've missed a bunch of stuff. And things go from scene to scene to scene, and it's jumping along. And so already in the first two chapters, Jesus has healed people. He's been in conflict with the religious leaders. He's been around crowds. He's been healing. He's been teaching. And now we pick up that same sort of theme in chapter 3. And so I want to make a few observations. So we're going to focus on the second part of the story. There's kind of two parts of the story, but I want us to make a couple observations on this first part of the story. So it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And by the lake, he doesn't mean Lake Michigan. He means the Sea of Galilee. We kind of use that same sort of language, don't we? Most of the time, if we just say, oh, I'm going down to the lake. Depending on your context and your people, you might know. I know Rhonda has a cottage on a lake, so if she were to say to her family, I'm going to the lake, she wouldn't have to name the lake. They would know exactly what she's talking about. Folks who live on Duck Lake, if they say, well, we're going out on the lake today, they know what that means. For many of us, the lake is the big lake. That's where I grew up. When I grew up on the shores of Lake Michigan, a little south of here, when we talked about going to the lake, we didn't have to say Lake Michigan. We just simply meant the lake. And so when Jesus is referred to as going to the lake, it's actually, we know it as the Sea of Galilee. So Sea of Galilee Lake. Sea, sometimes we think of something huge. It's a lake. It's a little lake. It's five, seven, eight miles across. So some of us who grew up on the shores of Lake Michigan might think, that's not a lake, that's a pond. But it's... a how can, you call it a, how can you call it a sea? But it's the sea, the sea of Galilee. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed him. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. And a friend of mine who's a um, professor of, of New Testament, he, he talks about this, and he says the importance of one of the valuable things he learned And something that I've started doing is, he said, the value of having a map out while you're reading the New Testament. The value of of following along with the geography, because honestly, I mean, most of us like Judea, Jerusalem, okay, Jerusalem, okay, I know about that, but like Idumea. Sidon, Tyre, what are all these places? So it's naming this huge region. And so what's been helpful for me is reading through the Gospel of Mark, as I just found online, a little copy of a map. Sometimes your Bible has a map in it. But kind of sitting beside there because I want to get a picture of that. If you look at a picture of this, he's describing that, in a sense, people are coming from everywhere. So Judea, Jerusalem. So if he's up at the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of up in the northern region, Jerusalem is south about 65 miles south. And then, Edomia is a little bit farther south. Tyre and Sidon are up to the north. The region to the Jordan is, is off to the west. So, I think if you're looking at the map, this way for you. so um, Well, west is that way, I know. But for, anyways. <laughs> you know what I mean. So we're looking, So So, there's all this region. And what's amazing to me is, Mark kind of makes the point here. He says, when they heard about all he was doing, he says, and a large crowd, many people, that's what Mark does, he kind of repeats himself, large crowd, many people, and they came from all over. These people came from miles away. Now, some of us might hop in our car and drive 50, 60, 70 miles to go to a concert or to hear something. These people didn't have cars, no buses, no trains. They traveled miles and miles to hear Jesus. I mean, Jerusalem is at least 65 miles. Enemy and some of those regions are even farther south. So it's possible that people tra- traveled over 100 miles to hear Jesus. How long do you think it would take you to walk 100 miles? A couple days at least, right? A couple days there, a couple days back. So there was something about Jesus that drew people, something about Him that was powerfully attractive, something that said, we want to go see Him. And it says, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding around him. So the picture is, he's on the shores of the lake, and if the people get too much, he's going to get in the boat, and he's going to push out on the shores. This is for he had healed many, so that those who with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. This was a day, there wasn't a whole lot of medicine. There weren't doctors. There wasn't huge medical centers we could go to, but people had diseases and sicknesses and Sometimes they might be healed, but most of the time they were hoping for something from there. And so they were pushing forward just to touch Jesus because they knew that somehow in Him, the power of God was present. In fact, next week we're going to read a story about someone who reaches out to touch Jesus and who's healed. But there's this idea, these crowds are coming to Jesus, seeking Him for what He can do for them. This is whenever the impure spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out. And So this is another theme, and... We'll be looking at this a little bit, but I want to highlight a couple things here. So this is the idea of a demons in possession. We did a series a couple years ago on uh, spiritual warfare. We're not going to go in depth on it this time. But there's a couple things I want to highlight as we look at this. Is It says the impure spirit saw him. They said, you are the son of God. Now we hear the term son of God. And sometimes we think of that in kind of the relationship. We think, oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. we remember that when we talk about the Son of God, when we talk about Jesus, that Jesus has always existed. That Jesus and God are one in the same, you know, eternally existent, same power. And so there's this complicated thing we've tried to sort out in church history and in theology of, of the Trinity. But, you know, it's not that God had a son and named him Jesus, but there was always been a son. The son has always existed. But Son of God, if we know our Bibles, if we look through our Bibles, is a term of kingship. If we go to, for example, we're not going to turn today, Psalm 2. So if you want to just write that down, say like, look at, look up on Psalm 2. And it uses that language of, you are my son, and it's talking about the one who becomes king. And so when the demons, when the evil impure spirits are saying, you are the son of God, they're recognizing him as the king. And so different terms get used through the gospels. And so they're son of God, There's Messiah, which is another language, the anointed one, or the king. And the other one is Son of Man, and we'll come to that at a later point. But all of those are essentially words, pictures that are describing Jesus as king. So these impure spirits say, you are the Son of God. And then there's this strange line. And maybe you've noticed it before and thought it strange. Maybe you've just kind of skipped by it. But it says, but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So Jesus is telling people, and he does this other times when he heals people. How many of you have ever noticed that, where Jesus, Jesus will heal somebody says, oh, don't tell anybody about me. But then we learn in church, and what is Ron to say? We're supposed to tell people about Jesus, right? So, so what's going on here? Is Jesus confused? Is he mixed up? Why, why does he tell some people to tell about him? Why does he tell other people not to tell about him? I think there's a couple of things going on. And I, some things I'm fairly certain about, some things I'm kind of I'm a little less certain about. This is kind of of those, I think I think at this point about this. And that there are two things going on when Jesus does this, and scholars refer to it as the messianic secret, this question of why so many times did Jesus say, don't tell anybody about this. I think there's two things going on. One is that Jesus wasn't trying to, you know, if, if people... We're told about this, what would happen? It would draw attention. It would draw attention particularly from the religious leaders. It would draw attention from the political powers. Jesus isn't wanting to draw attention. Jesus isn't out to start a revolution. He's not trying to say, look at me, look at all these things I'm doing. I'm the son of God. He's simply going about his task. So part of what Jesus is doing and what Mark is trying to remind us of, Jesus wasn't put to death for being a revolutionary. He was put to death because of the religious leaders and because of the will of god the second thing that i think we see is so many times in these stories particularly with people is they are told don't tell anyone about him how many of these people listen to him almost none they go and they tell people about jesus and the other thing is if jesus is going around and telling people don't tell anybody about me how is it that people from hundreds of miles away are coming to see him why is it that even Joe Jesus is saying, shh, don't tell anyone about me, that people are flocking to see him? I mean, in today's church marketing world, what do we, we have to have advertising and we buy ads on Facebook and we say, go tell everybody about our church, tell everybody about things. Jesus is the exact opposite. He says, don't tell anybody about me, but people flock to him. And I think what Mark is wanting to highlight for us is, is just how amazing, how incredible how beautiful Jesus is. And that just because of who he is, people are drawn to him. That the person and work of Jesus can't be hidden. That it can't be covered up. That Jesus and his goodness will be revealed. And so that's part of what Mark is getting at. But I want to get into the second part of the story because this is where I really want to focus is on. So it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and the idea is he was trying to get away from the crowds. He was tired of these so... And he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And I want to notice a difference here, what's going on. The crowds came to him, why? Because they wanted to be healed. The crowds wanted something from Jesus. In this case, Jesus is calling people to himself. He's calling and appointing, and this is by the initiative of God, that God has a purpose for them. He appoints them. And so there's this picture of God saying, I want you, of Jesus saying, I want you to be with me. And it says, he appointed 12. So, why do you think he appointed 12? Was his, you know, did his van only hold 13 people? And so he wanted to say, well, this is a good size for, you know, church van. We can fit 13 people in it. Or the church boat in this case, right? And so it was like, oh, well, he gets in a boat a lot. Well, maybe 13. Any guesses what the significance of the number 12 is? Other than a dozen eggs? 12 tribes. Exactly. There are 12 tribes in Israel. So the people of God, this whole first two-thirds of our Bible, the Old Testament, that God has called the people to Himself, and there were 12 tribes of Israel. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus chooses 12, because what's going on here is Jesus is saying, I'm renewing this people. Because the story of the Old Testament has kind of ended. Remember I said, earlier that there's this story and it kind of is begging to be finished and what's happened god has appointed a people and the old testament if you were to read through it as a story from beginning to end it ends with the people kind of sitting there going what's next there are no more prophets god doesn't seem to be speaking but the people of god have been called with a purpose they've been appointed with a task and we heard that from the book of exodus the tribes of israel so nation of israel has been in slavery in egypt God does these incredible acts, brings them out of slavery, they go through the Red Sea, they celebrate, they come to Mount Sinai, this this holy mountain, and God comes to them. And at the mountain, He reminds them that He's their God and they're His people, and they have a task. Did you hear what that task was in Exodus 19? They were to be what? A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, they were to be a people who were to share with the world what God is like. The role of a priest was to take people before God. They were to be a holy nation. They were to say, here, everybody, this is what God is like. That was their task, just as it was in the Garden of Eden, just as it was all through the history, was to say, you are to be my people, and you are to share who I am. You are to demonstrate what I am like. And they say you be a holy people. In other words, they were to live differently. They were to have a different kind of life, and when people saw that different kind of life, it would draw their attention to God. They were to embody the wor- to the world the ways of the king. And this is a pattern that God uses people to show others what he is like. And this is what it says here. He appointed these 12, and so it's this beginning, this renewal of what God had been doing all along to be a people, and it's clear from his task. So what does he appoint them to do? He says he appointed 12 that they might be with Him. There's just that little word that they might be with Him. And so what's the language of with Him? It's relational language, but it also implies learning of growing. So in ancient times, um, in the times of Jesus, there were rabbis. Rabbis were teachers and they would take on disciples. And so this word disciple, and we've talked about that we did a whole series on disciples and discipleship, appears about 260 plus times uh, in the New Testament. The word Christian... I think three or four times. So disciple is this image of a picture and it's an image of someone who's following and learning. And so a rabbi would take on disciples or learners and the disciples would follow that person around to watch how they lived and how they acted. And the goal was to become like the rabbi, like the master. Um, one writer um, who I've quoted before Dallas Williams, uses the term apprentice. And maybe that's a more familiar term to many of us is this idea of an apprentice. An apprentice is what there's, there's a, a master and they take on an apprentice. And what's the goal of the apprentice? The apprentice is what? Wanting to learn everything the master knows. He's wanting to learn how to do that craft, how to do that thing. And in this case, it's how to live a life. And so Jesus takes on apprentices and that's what he's calling them to be, to be with him not just because he's lonely. Jesus doesn't say, man, I'm just lonely. I'm, this is terrible. I need some people to hang out with. I need some people to carry my books for me. I need some people. Jesus is inviting them to be with him so that they can learn from him. And this is what he's getting at is they learn from him in part when he sits and he teaches them and he tells them and he tells them explorers. But how else, does he, how else do they learn from him? example by watching him right they're watching him because he doesn't stop every moment and say okay now I'm reaching out to this leper see what I'm doing guys I'm reaching out to people who are on the outside he does it and they're watching and they're learning from him just the same way that a master and apprentice teaching an apprentice somebody in a wood shop or um, welding or whatever it is doesn't always explain everything but part of it's just watching and learning and sometimes the apprentice is asking questions, right? Well, why, why did you do it that way? What's going on? And we see that in the Gospels. And sometimes Jesus does something in the, the disciples. His apprentices stop and say, can you explain that to us, Jesus? What's that all about? And so when it says Jesus says he invited them to be with him, they're wanting to learn from him. It says to be with him that he might send them out. In other words, they're learning from him for what purpose? To be sent out. They're learning from him so that then they can go and share this good news. And it says it also to have authority to drive out the demons. And so there's this picture of their being with him to be sent out to proclaim the good news. The good news that Jesus is king. That Jesus has died and risen. That the crucified Jesus is the resurrected king. And that he rules in forgiveness. In other words, they're to make Jesus known. They're to invite people into the kingdom. So I want us to think about, have three things we might do with what's going on in this story. How might this picture of the kingdom and what Jesus is doing here have to do with us? The first is to ask ourselves, what are we invited to? Jesus appointed the 12, but he later calls bigger crowds. and They they weren't the only ones, but he appoints particular, but then that goes out. But to ask ourselves, what are we invited to? And we're invited to the same thing, to be with Jesus and to live under the rule of King Jesus. And this is a theme we're going to be returning to a lot. What does it look like to live under King Jesus, to be with him, to be shaped by him as a king? I told you Rhonda stole some of my stuff because she read my notes here because one of the first things we do is we obey. Obey. Part of living under a king is being obedient. Part of our witness of being followers of Jesus is doing what Jesus calls us to do. And it's not about there's a temptation to laud it over others to say, look at how good I am. And we've created rules through the years in church about what a good Christian is and what a you know, a bad Christian is. And I've, I've talked before, I said, when I grew up, I had that picture in my head that that was what it meant to be a Christian, was to be good. You know, so I had a list of rules that I had accumulated, some from hearing in church, some from other people, that set out, this is what a Christian does. But I had no idea why or what, but I just thought like, oh, if I can keep doing those good things. But our witness isn't taking our morality and holding it over others and saying, Look how good we are. The point of obeying Jesus, of loving Him and loving our neighbors, isn't so we can turn to the people outside and say, Look how good we are. First of all, we're not that good. But second of all, that's not the point of being good. We're being good because... That is a demonstration through words that we are a different pedigree. Good deeds are not done to solicit praise. We don't do good things to solicit praise, but out of obedience and love. Now, when we do good things, it brings praise to God. But the focus of doing good things isn't to be praised ourselves. And so we're invited to be with Jesus, and so we might want to ask ourselves to say, how am I being with Jesus? What am I doing to learn from and become like Jesus? You know, there's, a, there's several central practices. One is spending time reading our, our Bible. And what you might want to do is especially, you know, these four Gospels, these four stories of Jesus is just spend time with Jesus. We can't, we don't have the opportunity that the disciples had to physically be with Jesus to walk around and see him do it. But we have stories. We have the, and I, by stories, I mean the record of what Jesus did. So we can spend time with Jesus by following along, and maybe we stop and we take a minute and use our imagination. There's different ways we can do it. It all depends. All of us are wired differently. Some of us like to dig in deep, and some of you might want to go and figure out what an original word means or how this, what this cultural thing is. Some of you like to use your imagination. Some of you enjoy poetry or songs or music. But find ways to be with Jesus and say, okay, what was going on here? And I think this is one great way to do it, is to use our imagination, to imagine yourself to say, okay, put myself in this scene. Because Mark doesn't tell us a whole lot of details, does he? But I'm in a scene and, and I'm a picture there and, and there's these crowds of people coming around. What sort of things do I hear? What do I s- smell? But most importantly, what is Jesus doing in the midst of this? How can I be with Jesus? How do I learn from Him? So we read our Bibles, we listen to our Bibles, we pray. We spend time with Jesus, we see, what does the life of Jesus look like? So the first kind of application point is to say, what are we invited to? We're invited, first of all, most of all, not to be good people, but to be with Jesus, to learn from Him, and to learn from Him first of all. So what we might want to do is we're, Entering into a new year saying, how am I being with Jesus? What am I doing to be with Jesus? Because think it, Jesus wants us to be with him. He doesn't say, oh man, it's you again. <laughs> oh, okay, fine, come on. I mean, we've all had the experience where we're, we're doing something, we're like, oh, not now. Just, Jesus is saying, come on, be with me. Be with me, watch me, learn from me. And so what are we doing to be with Jesus? The second thing we might want to do then is, if we're going to tell people about Jesus, is what are we inviting people to? Sometimes we get caught up, and particularly as a pastor within a church, we say, oh, we need to get people to church. Maybe you have a friend and you're worried about where they're going in their life, or, or there's troubles or heaven. It's like, oh, I need to get them to church. And I want to say this carefully. We don't need to get them to church. What we need to do is get them to Jesus. Now there's a connection between those two. We learn about Jesus and we, we enjoy the fellowship of, of other Christians and we grow with them and, and we learn with them. But the central thing is we invite people to be with Jesus. We're not inviting them to be good people. But we're inviting them to be with Jesus, to learn from him, to be loved by him. And sometimes we forget that. I forget that sometimes. I get so focused and it's easy to get focused on this, which is much more practical, much more easy to see. Like, oh, I got him to come to church. Or, well, I could if I could just get him to come to church. The first priority is to get them to know who Jesus is, to invite them to be with Jesus. Now, church is going to be a natural part of that. The church, the kingdom is is a natural part of that and we can't say, well, I can be with Jesus without the church. That's a sermon for another time because you can't. The church is the body of Christ and we need the body of Christ. We can't have the body, the head without the body. They go together. But we need to think about, am I inviting people into a church or am I inviting people to be with Jesus? Because I think church as many of us know, can be a messy place. You might think, oh, well, come to my church. Well, you know, there's, there's that guy. You might not want to talk to him. And you know, sometimes this, and uh, the pastor talks too long. And, but but it's, it's a great We invite them to be Jesus. Why? Because what did we see in that first part of the story of Jesus? People walked hundreds of miles to be with him, just to be around him. These 12 men here plus hundreds of others gave up most of what they knew in their life just to hang around with Jesus because he was so beautiful. He was so incredible. He was so amazing. He was so attractive. He was so compassionate, loving, and good. Invite people to be with Jesus because I have met very few people and say, oh, Jesus, that what a jerk he was. People might say that about a church, but I have met very few people And many non-believers say, yeah, Jesus, I mean, what is there to argue with about His goodness, about His beauty? So invite people to be with Jesus. Church will follow along with it, and that's, that's a part of that obeying, but first invite them and say, there's this good and incredible and beautiful God, and He came and He took on flesh, and His name is Jesus. Come be with Him. So we're invited to be with Jesus, and we invite others to be with Jesus. Okay, deep breath. The third one is thinking about living under Jesus. And I want to think about it, living under King Jesus in light of our current situation and what's been going on in the last few weeks. Because this has been something I've been rolling around in my head, rolling around in, in my thoughts, and I think I just need to say something about that. And when when I say recent events, I'm thinking back to um, what took place in our Capitol on January 6th, um, the upcoming inauguration and those things. And so as we begin, a couple of nuances and introductions and say, when we look at the events of January 6th, there were a lot of people there. And they were there for many, many different reasons. And we should be careful, and I want to be careful not to lump them all together and to say they were all the same and they were all, and we need to all be recognized, they came from different groups, they came with different purposes, with different ideas and stuff. And we don't know what all those different groups are. So first thing, lots of different people, lots of different reasons. Second thing I would say is none of us have it all right in terms of what happened. Right? And so most of us have probably read at least a story or two. Seen something on the news, seen something about these pictures and And to recognize that we're doing so and to recognize that I've read a variety of accounts, a variety of stories, and I still want to recognize like I don't know what even the people who there who were there or were watching it don't know everything that happened. So I want to be careful and not imply that I know all that took place. But in the midst of that, I also want us to remind us the importance of getting our information from different sources, of, of hearing of different things, and to say, recognize that part of being with Jesus, part of being a follower of Jesus, is truth. And so we need to be diligent about pursuing the truth. And I think one of the most valuable ways, particularly in the information age that we live in, is to expose ourselves to different sources. To hear news from different perspectives. And some of us might want to say, well, I don't want to listen to them because they're slanted this, you know, they're slanted to the left, they're slanted to the right, and they're fake news, and they're just propaganda for the... It is so valuable, so important to hear and to look down and say, what's the difference, what's going on in these stories? Because if we just simply hear all our news, all our sources from one perspective, it becomes slanted because the reality is both sides have a slant. Some might say a perspective, some might say a bias, whatever word you want to do it that the nature of news is there is no neutral news. I mean, even when we go back and say, oh, they were just giving the facts, even when you just give the facts, you choose which facts to tell. So even when it was the old days, and the old, watch some of the old newsreels, and you know, there's like, here's Walter Cronkite, or, you know, well, just reading like, oh, he was just giving the facts. He was choosing which facts to tell you. Now, he might not have been what we perceive as, as biased, but as he told the story... He was choosing to give you particular facts, or his 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 editors were giving particular facts. So, gather news from particular different sources. Something I found um, useful. I I found an app for my phone, and I realize not all of you use smartphones, but it's a website also called All Sides, AllSides.com, and what it does is it it does exactly that. So if I look up a news story, um, so. Something about like, okay, there's there's an event in a place. It'll give me three different news stories based on different kind of things. So it'll say, oh, here's here's something from a right-leaning perspective. You know, here's something from, say, a Fox News. Here's here's the story as it's covered by something left-leaning like a CNN and MSNBC. Here's something from more towards the center, maybe a Reuters or AP story. And it's fascinating even sometimes to just read the headlines. The headlines are the different things. But it's helpful for me because I can get in my own little bubble. It's helpful for me to see oh, wait, that's how other people see this story. Here's maybe a different look in the story, and I need to. And I realize we are not all investigative reporters. We don't all have hours and hours of time to research every single story. But sometimes just looking at a few headlines, reading a different story, or, and difficult during this time of COVID is, Find somebody who's from a different perspective than you and kind of see how they see things. Hang out with them and say, oh, what did you think about that? And then just stop and listen to it. So, none of us have it altered. right? What has happened, but part of our witness is truthfulness. Third thing, violence and destruction is wrong. As I said, many groups, many people. And I'll say, at what went on on January 6th, there were many people who were peaceful. There were lots and lots, just as all through the summer, Many of the protesters were peaceful. There were acts of violence. There were acts of destruction. And we need to be clear in our condemnation and say this sort of thing is not acceptable. Violence and destruction is wrong. To burn down buildings, to smash windows, to to beat people is not okay. It's wrong. And we need to condemn that wherever and whenever it happens. But the thing for me as a pastor, having said those kind of those initial things, the thing that disturbed me, that got me churning, was when I saw in the midst of the crowds and watched some of the videos and have watched some of the interviews, even with some of the people afterwards, is giant signs that said Jesus saves, of a giant wooden cross, of music being played, of, of people praying, of, of one man who broke into the Senate building, and then they said they broke in, and then in the middle they stopped and they said a prayer. And I thought to myself, For me, I said, what is going on here? Because I think, from my perspective, there is a danger when the cross is linked too closely with one party, whether it's Democrat or Republican. This is what is called nationalism, a fusion of Christianity with American life, about seeking Christian power rather than Christian principles, where the mission of the church is fused with the workings of a political group, whether Democrats or Republicans. And so it was heartbreaking to me because I began to think, Here's this story we've been given. We're, we're to be witnesses to Jesus. And what happened was there was this fusion of a con- fusion and confusion about who and what these people were representing. Were they representing Jesus? Were they re- representing Donald Trump? Were they representing Antigua? Who were they representing? But why were there so many symbols of the faith going on? And why, in some cases, were they part and central to the violence that was going on? And to say, when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom is about making God known, not about making America greater, making America better. And I must stop and say this, America is an amazing country. I'm not going to, I'm not putting America down by any words. I spent six years serving in the military. I, I mean, you know, this doesn't have to do with being a patriot. It's not about not celebrating our country and all the good and incredible things that our country is about. Or, and it's not about not participating in the political process. I did a whole series back on that in the fall. I'm not saying we shouldn't, as followers of Jesus, participate in the political process. But we have to remember that the kingdom of God is people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. That the church is the renewed people of God. That America is not the new Israel. And when we mix our symbols of our faith with politics and invoke God for our political party, we are leading in the direction of idolatry. And what happens when we do this? And here's why it's so important to me. Because our concern is not what is better for America, what is, but is what is best for the witness of the church. I want to say that again. When we act, and that's why I said we, we have every right. And so one of the challenges, kind of backing up, one of the challenges is the New Testament was written in a time where there was an empire. There were no voting booths. There was no opportunity, there was no such thing as a right to gather for a peaceful protest. If you gathered for a protest in the Roman Empire, you didn't go to the local governor and get a permit and say, I'm exercising my First Amendment right to have a protest. You gathered for a protest, a Roman legion showed up, and you might very well end up hanging on a cross as an insurrectionist. So we live in a very different time. So we can't, it's not always easy to go to our New Testament and say, oh, here's what we should do. But one of the things we recognize is when we're talking about the witness and witnessing to Jesus is where is our concern and what is our central? That wanting to make America a better place is good. But we have to ask ourselves when we're doing that, is our concern about the witness of the church or what is better for America? What is better for America or what is best for the witness of the church? And so when I saw that, and I say it not simply as me as an individual, but watching friends of mine who I interact with online, you know, friends from high school, from college, from other places I've met, who are on a very different place. I lean, you know, slightly to the right side of the political spectrum, the more conservative. Many, many of my friends having gone to an Ivy, Ivy League school, you know, liberal art school, a, a liberal school in many ways, they have, you know, those to use labels for lack of better terms, many of my friends lead very much the other direction. And so when I watch them and they see this going on, they become convinced that this is what the church is all about. They think, oh, well, the church is just all about Donald Trump. The church is just about repub- being a Republican that Christianity is associated with this. They watch this event go on and say, oh, this is what the church is like. And you know what they say after that? I don't want any part of that. And so again, the question isn't whether the people going to the Capitol on January 6th had legitimate grievances. It isn't about whether or not they had a right to gather, which they did. They had a right to stand up and be heard. The question is, by bringing in crosses, by bringing in Jesus Saves banner and some of the T-shirts which seem to blend images of Jesus and Donald Trump in all I can say is blasphemous ways. And, and it's not just... It happens on the left sometimes. It happens with the Democrats too. I'm not, but in this case, I'm focusing on the event from January 6th. It's to say that this is a hindrance to the witness of the church. And so we have to ask ourselves, when we do things, we have to ask ourselves, What is best for the witness of the church, not what's best for America? Because those two things are not always going to be the same thing. Those two things are not always going to be the same thing. We need to clarify and make clear where our true loyalty lies. Our loyalty is not to a political party. Our loyalty is to Jesus the King. We need to be known by love. We need to ask ourselves what it looks like when God called the people and said, you are to be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He wasn't talking about a literal nation. He was talking about a people of God. And so we need to remember who we are called to be. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus is king and that Jesus is Lord. He's over Democrats, he's over Republicans, he's over all. And our allegiance is to him. And as much as the United States is a great country, As much as the United States is a great place to live, the United States will one day cease to exist, but the kingdom of God will remain. The United States one day will cease to exist, but the kingdom of God will remain. So we have to ask ourselves, where is our allegiance? Where do we mix those two things together? And we can't allow those two things to blend together in such a way. Our focus needs to be on how are we proclaiming the kingdom of God and our political acts, whatever those may be, we need to consider how do they proclaim or how do they witness to the goodness of Jesus? How do the things I say, the acts I do in my political sphere witness to Jesus? are they telling people about the goodness of Jesus or are they telling people something else? So where is our witness? How are we witnessing to the goodness of Jesus? Close with this. The good news is that King Jesus has come. And my prayer is that we keep our eyes fixed Not on a donkey, not on an elephant, but the lamb who was slain. Not on a flag, but on a cross on which the Prince of Glory died. As we live with Jesus and we proclaim the good news, may King Jesus be our vision, our wisdom, our best thought, our ruler of all. Amen.